Tim, how you doing? Hey, Justin, I'm doing all right, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, you are the perfect guest for today. Uh, you're from Michigan. You've been covering Michigan politics for a long time. Uh, you've been covering politics generally for a long time. You've covered, I guess, the MAGA sort of Trump Republican movement. Um, what happened yesterday? You know, I, I think um, what we saw in, in Michigan and Arizona specifically, uh, we could broaden it out a bit and talk about some of the other uh, happenings. Obviously, what happened in Kansas is significant as well. But I think looking at the results in Michigan and Arizona, um, it's a pretty good window into this kind of uh, the, the long tail of Trumpism, if you will. Um, in other words, there's been so much conversation in recent months about you know, is Trump's influence over the party diminishing? Is his grip loosening? If so, to what degree? And and I think where I always sort of come down in these conversations is like, look, um, it, it's hard to quantify any of this, particularly while he's off Twitter and on the golf course down in, in Florida and uh, largely out of the public eye. You know, once he throws himself back into the arena, uh, assuming that he does, in fact, run in 2024, then we'll have a much better gauge of, of where the party is relative to Trump. But I think regardless of whether Trump is running or even whether Trump is directly involved in a, in a race, uh, he's been involved in plenty of them. But there's also been some that he's sat out. I think what we see pretty consistently is that some of the forces unleashed by Trumpism are are still alive and well, and they'll be alive and well, Justin, long after he's departed the scene. Uh, it's, 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 I think it's pretty obvious that, um, you know, that you and I have talked about this before. I'm just a big believer in, in the idea that Trump didn't create this crazy moment of polarization and institutional decline in American life, right? He was very much a consequence of it. And I think if you believe that, as I do, that, you know, you have to take a longer view of this and realize that um, that some of these forces that brought Trump into office, um, they're going to be here long after he's gone. And yes, uh, his influence over the party can be seen uh, directly and indirectly still. But if you look at uh, what happened in Michigan 3, for example, your old district, and I know we'll spend some time talking about that. Um, you know, Peter Meyer's primary opponent, John Gibbs, raised no money. Um, he had Trump's endorsement, but Trump didn't go to the district for him. Uh, there, there was no, there was, there was not the sort of muscle uh, or money on the ground that typically would be required to unseat a very well-heeled incumbent with tremendous name identification in his district, and yet uh, Gibbs was able to win, and. You could look at this as just a uh, just a response, <clears throat> excuse me, just a backlash against Myers' impeachment vote. But I think uh, what's probably more significant is is just you know again as we saw in Arizona in a couple of these races as well that when the sort of MAGA movement uh, uh, sort of coalesces behind one candidate uh, and and makes noise. 
uh, in, in right-wing media and knows which buttons to push, uh, it's really tough to overcome. And whether Trump is central to those efforts or not, sometimes he is, but sometimes he isn't, it has proven difficult for a lot of more mainstream Republicans to overcome. So we saw that in both of those states last night. Is it, is it because they have a high floor now? In other words, there's just going to be 40 to 50 percent of Republican voters in almost any district, including one like Michigan's third, on the Republican side who are just we're all in on MAGA. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what Peter Meyer is. Uh, it doesn't matter how conservative he is on anything. If he's not with us all the way on every single MAGA item or he's not he's not devoted to Donald Trump the same way that that we'd like him to be. We're just voting against him. Is is that a thing that's going on across the country? Yeah, like, with, just a high floor now because it used to be. It used to be floor, maybe like yeah, maybe like twenty percent used to be. Right, I, the floor is definitely higher than I think some people are comfortable acknowledging. Um, and particularly, you know, put this in the context of a Republican primary, right? I mean, even in a place like West Michigan, where you know. Republicans in West Michigan are not Republicans in Northern Michigan, uh, right? And 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 you 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 have significant sort of geographic and socioeconomic and cultural distinctions within these different Republican voting bases, and yet still in a Republican primary, whether it's uh, you know for Congress or for governor um, or for a statewide office, um, you tend to have. Just as a just as a uh, just as a general rule, you, you you tend to have a much lower participation rate uh, in a June or July or August primary than you uh, a much smaller slice of the Republican electorate turning out than you do a few months later come November. And naturally, that slice that turns out is going to be more ideologically concentrated. And so, you know, none of this is new. Of course, this is like yeah. one on one. But I think. Um, that's always been the case. And, and look, when you wrote in on the wave, on the Tea Party wave in 2010, that was the case, right? Uh, none of this is new, uh, except to say that I do feel like the, however you want to think about the old distinctions in the Republican Party and how they've evolved. So whether it used to be sort of conservative versus establishment or Tea Party versus moderate, or, or now it's sort of MAGA versus mainstream, however you want to think about that dichotomy, I do think that the floor, to your point, is significantly higher, the built-in floor, the baseline from which some of these far-right candidates are operating, it used to be, I want to say, maybe 20 or 25 percent. Now, I definitely think it's closer to, you know, around 40 percent, maybe even higher in some cases. And I think that's, in and of itself, a pretty significant change. Yeah, because in the old days, at least, if you had a candidate running with basically no money, I mean, Gibbs did not raise much money. Um considerably outspent i don't think i received a mail piece from gibbs at my house and we received something at least supportive of meyer almost every day toward the end i mean it was very frequent it felt like almost every day uh it probably actually was every other day or every third day but it felt like almost every day and um in the old days a campaign like that it's a no-brainer I mean, the person with the resources, with the name ID, uh, is just going to wipe out the other person. So I think something substantially different is going on from, say, a few years ago. I'm not sure the endorsements matter anymore either. I'm not sure, like, uh, you know, when I was first running for office, 
a lot of local endorsements made a difference. I don't think anyone cares about any endorsements anymore. There's, there seems to be a breakdown where you're with Trump or you're not with Trump. And if you're with Trump, you're good. And if you're not with Trump, you're bad. And in a one-on-one race like this, it can be hard to overcome. With all that said, don't you think it's surprising maybe to some of the MAGA people that Meyer was as strong as he was? In other words, I think there are a lot of people who think um, within that community, oh, like Meyer turned against us because he voted to impeach Donald Trump. And they probably expected him to get like 20% of the vote or something like that. But he almost won. I mean, it was a close race. Yeah. Uh, so this race sort of happened in phases. Uh, the, the initial phase when Gibbs got into the race was, uh, and I know this because I was just wrapping up a long magazine piece that I was writing on Meyer. And literally, I think it was like the day or the, or maybe the day before that piece had to be shipped to the printer. Like we were just finishing up like the final fact checks and all the edits and everything is when Gibbs entered the race. So very last minute, we had to squeeze in like a quick sentence about, you know, Meyer has now drawn this, this one primary challenger and, and, and the mood, the reaction in the immediate aftermath of Gibbs entering the race was just kind of a lot of eye rolling and also just a lot of like, well, who is this guy? Never heard of him. It's not really from here. Or maybe he is, but he hasn't lived here in many, many years. Stuff well, like he's, that. he's from Lansing. He's not from the Grand Rapids area. Right. And, and so there was, there was just, a, I think, a general sense that this isn't a very serious challenge. And then I think after a few months, uh, and not just with Trump's endorsement, but I, I made the point earlier, Justin, I can't underscore this enough. The one thing that I have found so consistent in all my reporting trips over the last 18 months or so is the degree to which conservative Republican voters have disconnected themselves from any anything even resembling mainstream media. And I would include Fox News in that. And they have now sort of gone a little bit off the grid with their information consumption sources. So, you know, like we don't necessarily appreciate just how big some of the alternative social media platforms are, Newsmax and OAN, um, you know, the Steve Bannon War Room uh, and a handful of these other, you know, right wing podcasters. Th- these folks have developed really big audiences. And I think Gibbs started to tap into some of that. And and you'd see him on Bannon's show, for example. And I think over the course of the springtime, that's when a few people really started to think, OK, Meyer could be in trouble here because clearly there are people around Trump people in the MAGA movement at higher levels who are helping this guy sort of coordinate behind the scenes how he's going to run this campaign. And it was seeming pretty effective. And and then, yeah, you're right. I mean, over I think over the last month or so, I kept hearing from people time and time again, Meyer's going to get smoked. He this is like he's he's a dead man walking. I never necessarily had that sense just because Michigan three is such a unique place. And Meyer was spending a lot of money. And I think his, you know, the name ID matters a lot. And so I, I always had the sense that it was gonna be very, very close. Um, but you're right. It's such a crazy inverted universe here where we're now talking about an incumbent, a personally wealthy incumbent with a big campaign war chest and with universal name ID in the district who, we're almost giving him like a uh, a consolation prize for running a close race against a challenger who raised no money and who nobody had ever heard of, right? Yeah. Like it's the upside down a little bit, you know? Right. Yeah, I know. It's, I totally agree. And 
Uh, again, someone who doesn't have a long history in the district either. I mean, he moved – Gibbs moved into the district to run the race. Right. He's, he's not even from the area. Um, so to me, it, it does reflect on this shift. And, you know, there are mistakes, I think, that the Meyer campaign made. I think there are ways in which things could have turned out differently, especially in such a close race. I do agree with you that a few months ago, it seemed like Meyer had more of a commanding position. He had all the resources. He had all the name ID, obviously. And Gibbs did not seem to be going anywhere. Like there wasn't a lot of traction a few months ago. And from my perspective, as someone who's run in the district, I think that's where you have to essentially seal the guy's fate. My opinion is not enough resources were used by the Meyer campaign at that time to really cement the idea that Meyer is just going to cruise to victory. I think that sort of that sort of impression had to be made in people's minds. It's not so much a um, it, it's more like a perception thing than anything else. Like you had to get the perception in the media and in people's minds that this is kind of a joke race. Like, it's it's not one where Meyer has a serious challenger. And if that perception could have gotten into people's minds at that time, I think things might have turned out very differently. I, I don't think he would have gotten the... Gibbs would have gotten the last-second boost he got, um, and Meyer would have been in a better position to sort of just cruise to victory. But what do you think about... This has been a big issue the DCCC running ads against Gibbs. I mean, they were, they were anti-Gibbs ads, but they're the kind of ads that are like, oh, Gibbs is so conservative. Gibbs is such a Trump loyalist. Gibbs is, you know, the perfect MAGA candidate. Yeah. Um, he wants a patriotic education. <laughs> right, patriotic education. <laughs> what do you think about that strategy by the DCCC? Is it... Because I've you know heard all sorts of perspectives on this. I have my own perspective on it, but um, is it unethical? Is it you know bad campaigning? Is it going to come back to bite the DCCC and Democrats? Um, is it just bad strategy? So I've got a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, I'll, I'll try and distill them for you. My my personal read on it is it's not unethical, right? There, all all is fair in love and war. Mm-hmm. I just believe that if as a party you have tried to claim the moral high ground as it pertains to uh, sort of safeguarding democratic institutions and democratic norms in this country uh, and, and, and pushing back on a Republican Party that has become increasingly authoritarian friendly at best and uh, sort of um, – you know, a party that that feels to its core to be less and less interested in protecting and promoting those democratic norms, those democratic institutions. If the if if, if you are the party that's supposed to be on the right side of history here, then you'd better be really consistent about y- your messaging and about your tactics, because you can lose that moral high ground really quickly. You know, I. Uh, in, in the book I wrote a few years ago about sort of the 
Trump takeover of the Republican Party, I I cited scripture uh, when Jesus says, you know, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? And I use that repeatedly in talking about so many of these Republicans who, you know, oh, because of judges or oh, because of tax cuts or oh, because of this, that or the other thing, were willing to sort of sell their souls because of the political gains involved with it, right? They gained the whole world politically, but they really did sell their souls in exchange for it. And, you know, I think the question I have for Democrats now is somewhat similar. It's like, you know, what does it profit a party to gain one house seat but forfeit their soul, right? Like, yes, you may very well now flip Michigan's third district, in an election cycle where you're going to probably lose, you know, 20, 25 seats, 30 seats anyway. So you're going to lose the majority. Sure, you might flip this one district. Congratulations. But at what cost? Right. This is the conversation you and I have had it a number of times over the last few years. Whenever you're in the room with some of these Republicans, a lot of your close former friends in the Freedom Caucus, you're just asking them at what cost? Right. Yes, you're getting this. But at what cost? And I think you know, for the Democratic Party to uh, sort of try to present itself as a bulwark against the forces of Trumpism on the far right that would shred our democratic norms and uh, cripple our democratic institutions, for them to then basically bankroll the campaign of a candidate who is a manifestation of some of those very forces all in the name of flipping one house seat. It, it, it seems, uh, it seems extremely short-sighted and, and I use the word dishonorable on Twitter. I do think that there has to be some honor in politics when, when it comes time for the general election, you know, you beat the crap out of your opponent and you try to win and you do what you have to do. Um, but Peter Meyer took, a vote that many Democrats at the time publicly and privately saluted him for the only freshman Republican who had the courage to take that vote to impeach Trump because he thought it was the right thing to do. And they rallied around him for that. And they applauded him for that. And then to turn around and throw a half a million dollars almost behind this fringe extremist MAGA election denying candidate uh, to try and take Meyer out. And it very well could have made the difference in a three-point race. It just seems, uh, it seems very short-sighted. Do you think Democrats just use democracy as a talking point? I don't mean every Democrat. I mean the Democratic Party or Democratic leaders or whatever the Democratic messaging machine is. They use democracy as a talking point the way that a lot of Republicans use the Constitution as a talking point. Not necessarily because they believe in it or they're going to you know, push for democracy or the constitution, but because it's just a thing to sell to their base? You know, it's a, it's a good question. It's not, and I don't want to give you a cop out. It's not something that I've spent a ton of time thinking about or reporting on. So I don't know if I can answer that, but I can see why you're asking it. Right. I mean, there is a, uh, particularly, you know, post 2020 and post January 6, 2021 there, I, I think it, it does become almost a crutch a rhetorical crutch, uh, for for some on the left uh and yeah and i'll tell you i'll tell you why i go ahead yeah no well i'm just, you know I, I and again that's where 
to me, this whole episode is so troubling because if you're going to present yourselves as the sort of guardians of, of democracy, then your credibility is on the line with everything you do and everything you say, right? And, and any, any hit to that credibility feels, I can just tell you, I mean, it's been interesting. I've talked to a bunch of Democrats in the last couple of weeks about this, uh, and a few of them have gone on the record. I saw a couple in Politico, a couple elsewhere who came out, who, who came out and condemned it on the record. But a bunch more that I've talked to, in Michigan particularly, who were really, really disturbed by this, but were unwilling to go on the record. And for me, you'll appreciate this, but there's a certain shade of the Trump era there where you had all these Republicans who behind closed doors would give you chapter and verse on how dangerous this was, how this was uh, damaging the party, how this was diminishing their credibility as conservatives, but they wouldn't say it publicly. And I do, I have picked up hints of that in the Democratic camp over the last couple of weeks where people were really upset by this, felt like it was really uh, undermining their, their message and undermining their credibility to talk about Democrat, uh, you know, Democratic norms, protecting small D Democratic norms. Uh, but they weren't willing to go out and say it publicly. And that's troubling to me. Yeah. And, and for me, I ask because I'm someone who experienced this in Congress where the system was very top-down, very centralized. The idea that we have some kind of true representative government is absurd. We don't. You know, you have Pelosi and a few of the people at the top, and of course Schumer in the Senate, who basically decide what's going to happen, and then they just go twist arms. There's not some kind of uh, broad democratic process. It's not some kind of like... I don't know, melting pot of ideas where we all come in and offer our, our little bits and we all have amendments and, and whatever happens, happens. It doesn't work that way. It's more like, here's the bill. Here's what it's going to be. Now, either you vote for it and you're a good team player or you vote against it and you're a bad team player. So there's, there's a lot of that. And when I bring that up on social media a lot of times where I'm critical of Nancy Pelosi, as I was of Paul Ryan and John Boehner, uh, but where I'm critical of the way the House operates, I get Democrats pushing back and arguing that I'm the one against democracy because I want democracy. You know, I want a representative system, and somehow that makes me the person against democracy because they say, well, if you open up the House, you'll just have these fascist Republicans, as they'll describe them, who will muck up the system and slow everything down and block everything that happens. So it's almost like they use democracy in a way – that doesn't really mean democracy. It's more like um, you'll stop our outcomes from happening if you stand in the way, if you allow a representative process. And you see a little bit of this too with the Andrew Yang forward party stuff where Andrew Yang comes out and he says, hey, I want to start this third party. And the Democratic response is overwhelmingly, why do you hate democracy, Andrew Yang? Which is so... Uh, like counterintuitive just logically, right? He's starting a third party. He wants to expand the ability for people to vote. Um, whether you, Whatever you think of Andrew Yang, he's saying, hey, I want to offer you an alternative. That sounds like a pro-democracy thing, yet Democrats will call it anti-democracy. So I, I increasingly feel like democracy is just used as some kind of I know you called it a crutch maybe, but like a, a word that is just thrown out there kind of like Republicans throw out the word constitution, even when they don't really mean it. You know, everything they don't like is unconstitutional and everything they do like is constitutional. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you say, I mean, it sort of brings us full circle back to 
you know, this question about Democrats meddling in Michigan three and in some of these other races where they've tried to prop up, you know, sort of far right extremist candidates um, that, you know, part of the blowback against Andrew Yang or part of the blowback against you uh, when uh, when you had uh, flirted with the idea of running into yeah. for president, uh, it comes back to this idea that uh, the stakes are so high for the survival of American democracy that anything that could peel away votes from this party, the pro-democracy party, the party that is standing at the, at, at the, at the uh, edge of the abyss and, and keeping America from tumbling in, that anything that, does, that, 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 that takes away or does damage to that party is uh, ipso facto sort of anti-democratic, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Listen, okay, if you're going to take that position, then again, as I said earlier, you better be really careful about the decisions you make and the message you put out there and and the way that you spend your money. And dropping a half a million dollars behind a guy who said that Biden's win was mathematically impossible uh, and who said a whole bunch of other things, uh, it, it just, it, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, I think quite inconsistent to put it generally. And, um, and that's, listen, I, I saw somebody, I forget who, somebody had a good Twitter, uh, Twitter thread about this this morning, basically saying, listen, I don't have time to argue with everybody who wants to defend the DCCC strategy here, but this is basically for this person was saying, for me, this becomes almost a litmus test of, are you a serious person or are you not? If you are a serious person, then you can see pretty clearly what the problems are here with what the Democratic Party has done vis-a-vis what the Democratic Party's stated position is on uh, democracy, you know, uh, on its last legs. And we need to call everybody uh, all hands on deck and do everything we can to protect it. Um, If you don't if you're not willing to acknowledge that, that's fine. But I'm just not going to really argue with you about it because you're probably not arguing in good faith. Yeah, we've got a lot of listeners here. So if, if anyone wants to get in the queue, please do so. Um, if you want to ask a question or share your thoughts. So let me play devil's advocate a little bit on the DCCC meddling or whatever people want to call it. What if it's not meddling? What if it's just the DCCC was polling the district, thought Gibbs was in a pretty good position to win, felt like he was likely to win? As a lot of polling seemed to be showing, right? Gibbs had put out polling whether you believe it or not, and everyone's own polls are a little bit biased in their favor, but he put up polling saying he's ahead by some substantial margins. He obviously did not win by substantial margin, but he put out that polling. Meyer himself had hinted that his polling was not great, whether it meant he was only up a few points or it was a tie. It it didn't seem like he was in any commanding position, at least in the last few weeks. So what if the DCCC was following this and they said, look, we think Gibbs is going to win. It would be malpractice not to get in ahead of this win and sort of start to frame him for the district as this person who's too conservative for West Michigan. He doesn't really fit our ethics and our values. He's not like us. Um, and we're just going to target him that way because we don't want him to win and then have essentially a head start because 
the Democratic opponent, Hillary Scolton, she's basically, I mean, to the extent she's doing anything campaign-wise, it's not really on people's radar. Like, I'm sure within some of the Democratic community within the district, she's hitting doors and sending a few things. But in the general public, I haven't seen much of all of uh, much at all of that campaign. So it's possible that you say, look, they've been Myron Gibbs have been going at it for a while. You're the DCCC. You're like, we don't want him to just have a like a some kind of runway here by winning. And all of the celebration around that and all of the theatrics and and joy and glory that is is connected to that. We don't want it, him to have that. We want to frame him a certain way before that happens. What about that idea? It's just to play devil's advocate, that that, that is a plausible strategy and, um, and not really meddling, but more just what you would do logically if you wanted to. Uh, if you wanted to win the district and you thought Gibbs was going to win the primary. Yeah. So um, I think if, uh, if, if I think what you're asking is, um, is it impossible to believe that actually what the Democrats were doing here was in good faith that they were attempting to do what parties sometimes do, which is to negatively define a party's likely nominee before they've emerged with the nomination. Yeah. You can get a head start on the general election. Um, and yes, the answer is yes, it is impossible to believe that. But I, I see what you're saying. I mean, uh, you know, Obama in 2012 and his outside group started pummeling Romney before, long before he actually had the nomination locked up because it was clear that Romney was going to be the nominee and they wanted to get a head start while Romney was spending all of his money fighting off a... Uh, a persistent Republican primary field, they wanted to get a head start on defining him negatively in the eyes of the general electorate. In Michigan 3, uh, there are some significant differences there. For one thing, you know, um, Gibbs was not by any stretch the the obvious nominee in waiting. Uh, this was not an attempt to start defining somebody who was uh, who was on a glide path to winning the Republican nomination. This was somebody who was in a dogfight. And I would go a step further. This was somebody who was in a dogfight with no money, right? This was somebody who was in a dogfight who had raised no money for his campaign, who was not on the air in the district, who was not doing much of anything as far as actually, you know, as far as voter contact is concerned. This is, this is a guy who was really just running a, a campaign they had some presence on the ground, but it was mostly sort of feeding off of free media in the right wing information world. So for the for the Democratic Party to come in and essentially subsidize the, the, the home stretch of this guy's campaign, running these ads that were saying, oh, he's too conservative for West Michigan, but like showing him hugging Trump. Uh, highlighting all of the greatest hits about how he supports a patriotic education and the Trump agenda and everything else. Like, you know, uh, it would strain credulity for anybody to look at that and think, oh, well, really what they're trying to do here is get a jump start on the general election. Uh, what they were clearly trying to do is elevate him because he will be uh, a, a much weaker general election candidate. And and here's, I guess, Justin, I'd close by saying this. Here's the, here's the, um, the best test for this, right? The, the, the best read on uh, whether we can have a charitable interpretation of what the Democratic Party was doing in Michigan 3 is to say, listen, show me how much money 
moving forward, the DCCC winds up dumping into West Michigan, right? If they wind up making it one of their five or seven or even 10 most expensive races, then maybe somebody could come back and say, okay, well, you know, perhaps it was a, a not just the bad faith meddling effort that, that Tim's describing. But now that Gibbs is the nominee, I don't expect the Democratic Party to necessarily be back there dropping tons of money because he's a bad candidate. And Skolden is a pretty good candidate. And the district is, I believe, D plus six. And odds are that there's going to be a lot of polling that comes back in the next month or two that shows that he's getting crushed there and that there's probably not a great need for further Democratic involvement, at least not in the way that Democrats will be involved in some of these other races. Yeah, I think it's hard to say. I mean, I I agree with you. I know the district. I think that Skolden was favored in the general, regardless of who came out of this primary. Um, That's... That's my perspective as someone who's lived in this area for a long time. With that said, I think that anything is possible in a year in which Republicans maybe outperform. So if if that's the case, if Republicans outperform by a significant enough margin, you could have a situation where a Gibbs wins the district. It seems unlikely, uh, maybe improbable based on the way the district is set up, but it's certainly possible. Can't you imagine a scenario in this cycle where they do dump in a bunch of money to to help out Skolton because they're worried about the outcome? And I I don't know. Like I just haven't seen I I haven't seen a lot of Skolton campaigning this time around, and I don't know if that's because she's just been so heavily focused on the Democrats and she wanted to wait to see who came out of this primary. But I haven't seen a lot. I I. I think there was way more campaigning last election cycle when she ran and lost to Peter by, I think, six points. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a lot more campaigning there, a lot more presence. And so I'm not sure what she's doing. I feel like in some ways she is maybe making the same mistake that Meyer's campaign made, which is letting someone like Gibbs get off the ground and not crushing him before he gets too far. I, I, I do yeah. worry about that from her. Like, just because it's a D plus whatever, I don't know what it is now, but you know, we have to have a few elections. Those numbers get skewed because you have a new district and the candidates are all different and all that. But um, it's definitely a democratic, a marginally democratic district. But if you don't do much of campaigning, and it's a strong Republican year, anything can happen, right? Yes, that's absolutely true. And and uh, you're right to warn me not to get over my skis here. The, the, I think, the, I think uh, part of the issue you're raising a minute ago about kind of letting this guy get off the ground, it's a classic conundrum for a campaign like Myers. I'm a little bit sympathetic to the decision they made in that regard, because when you're running against somebody who has no money and who's never lived in the district and who's brand new, you start running negative ads against them. And suddenly you just raise his profile, right? Mm-hmm. Suddenly raise his name ID. I mean, this is what Eric Cantor did to Dave Bratt back in the day where he carpet bombed the district down in Virginia with ads attacking Dave Bratt and all of these people who didn't particularly like Eric Cantor, but probably would have voted for him anyway, or at least sat out the election they kind of perked up and said, who's this Dave Bratt guy, right? And the next thing you know, Cantor loses. So I think it's tricky 
if you're in Meyer's position, it's it, it can it can you know it it's a uh, it's a very thin line between defining someone negatively versus just raising their profile. Now, in the general, I would expect that as of today, as of about six a.m. this morning, that the Scolton folks and the and the Michigan Democratic folks would be on the ground, uh, p- beginning to pound the pavement and beginning to lay out a uh, a strategy for doing that that that. Uh, that sort of negative definitional work starting like now, starting, you know, in the, in the next week or two. Um, and I, and I do suspect this is a broader conversation for us to have about the Michigan uh, elections up and down the ballot this year. But I do suspect that given some of the um, um, less electable Republicans on the statewide ballot, particularly in the AG race and the secretary of state race, uh, the concern has been, as you well know, for a lot of Republicans here in recent months, that you are probably going to see some state legislative races and potentially even a congressional race or two that Republicans ought to win on paper that could slip away from them at the margins because of some of these uh, candidates at the top of the ticket pulling down the entire party. So now in West Michigan, Republicans have just added another sort of far right candidate who's who's sort of out of the mainstream, if you will, uh, I would be very, very, very surprised. It, uh, I'm already a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm already skeptical that this is going to be the sort of Republican wave year that we've seen in, in 2010 um, or in, even in 2014 to a certain extent. Uh, I'm not sure that you're going to see Republicans, you know, winning 35 or 40, 45 seats. Uh, and I think that that's the sort of way that would probably take for somebody like Gibbs to get elected. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the conundrum people face when they run for office. And if, if they're the incumbent or they're in a commanding position, and I understand this having been in that situation, when you've got a competitor who doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the name ID, what do you do? And I don't want to give away all my proprietary, you know, campaign advice here, but here's here's what I noticed living in the district, which is very different from how I operated as a candidate. And I say this about both Scolton and Meyer. We made uh we made it a big theatrical thing running for office. In other words, you couldn't go down the street without seeing very large Justin Amash for Congress signs. You know, you're driving down 28th Street, a major street within uh, the Grand Rapids metro area. You've got huge Justin Amash for Congress signs two, three months before the election. They're everywhere you go. Like you can't, you can't drive anywhere without being just inundated with these things. And you almost can't believe how many there are. So that kind of, um, you know, almost theater f- for people, like, look look at all the support for this guy that's out there, hasn't been present in this race. Um, and I say that on the Democratic side and on the Republican side, as much as it's getting national attention, on the ground, it's been pretty quiet like very quiet compared to when I used to run campaigns. Now we did get a lot of mailers, especially from AFP supporting Peter Meyer um, and, and some other outside groups. But other than that, it's, it's been a very quiet campaign. We haven't seen it. 
And what I'm saying is when you're in a position against a weak candidate, a candidate like Gibbs, who whatever else you want to say, you know, he won the primary. So, you know, whether we can call him weak, but he won. But he didn't have resources. He did not have name ID. He's not even from the area. He's, by all measures, a weak candidate historically. When you've got a candidate like that, you have to have all of the pomp and circumstance and all the stuff going on to show that you are commanding this thing. There's no comp- – so you don't have to say Gibbs. You don't have to say Gibbs is bad or name Gibbs or anything. You just have to show that you are dominating this thing. And there, there hasn't been that kind of show. I didn't see it enough from the Meyer campaign, and I certainly don't see it from the Skolton campaign. And I think that's been a mistake. And uh, Skolton herself is potentially going to make that mistake too. I mean, I don't want to, like like I said, I don't want to give away all my advice to everyone on, on here. Um, but, but I do think campaigns are a lot about feelings. Like, how do people feel? It's, it's not about the logic of it. Like, this person ha- shares all my positions. And if you can make people feel like you're going to win, they want to vote for you because people want to vote for winners. And and I think that's been missing um, in this campaign. So I, I worry about that with um, – I mean I'm not taking sides in that race between Gibbs and Skolton. Like I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. But uh, I do think that Skolton is maybe making a mistake so far. I haven't seen the kind of um, – you know, just elevation of her campaign that you need to see to be in a commanding position at the end. Let's, uh, you can respond to that or I'll t- I can take a caller. The only thing I was going to briefly say is I think, uh, I think what's going to be interesting here now that he is the nominee is he's going to, he's going to take a turn in the barrel here. Uh, we don't know a lot about John Gibbs and let's face it. Uh, there are, a bunch of primaries that play out in a bunch of places that just don't get all that much attention. And really even this race in Michigan three didn't get a lot of attention until what, maybe a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Uh, So Gibbs has gone on the record saying some outlandish things, but like, where is he on abortion? For example, where is he on, uh, you know, in the post Dobbs era now with Congress voting on trying to, um, uh, uh, cement into law protections for same-sex marriage and for interracial marriage. Like he's going to start getting asked about a lot of these things, and I think that's that's going to give us maybe a window into what the strategy is on the Democratic side because you could see Gibbs, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but he sort of fits the profile of the type who could sort of dig his own grave very quickly and Democrats don't even have to wind up spending because he could just be, he could sort of self-sabotage and self-destruct really quickly by, by saying, you know, he's not for any exceptions for abortion or this, that, or the other thing. That sort of thing plays out all the time. And so again, it's not, I have no idea what Skolton's campaign brain trust is thinking right now, but we're about a hundred days out. They've got some time to define this guy negatively and to, to do what you're saying, which is to sort of flood the zone and, and make sure that they're visible in the district. Um, but I do think part of their strategy is probably going to depend on what we see and hear 
from Gibbs himself in the weeks to come. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a caller. Uh, we've got Tyler. Am I coming through? Yeah, hey, Tyler. How you doing? Well, thanks, Justin. How are you? Good. Uh, well, thank you to both of you for the uh, conversation so far. I found it really illuminating. Uh, Tim, in American Carnage, I think you do a really good job at tracing how Trump or the Trumpist takeover of the Republican Party is sort of an outgrowth of broader existing social and cultural trends within the conservative movement. I think you also touched on how that's sort of accelerating. You see MAGA growing in terms of candidate dominance in primaries. You talked about how they're sort of forming alternative media environments where they're disregarding whole sections of the country and of the media. Like Justin, I'm a lifelong resident of Michigan's third district, and I'm really disillusioned by all of this. I I was kind of happy with Peter Meyer. I thought that he had been doing a good job, certainly better than was to be expected from Republican candidates. And this loss is kind of a blow to what I think the post-Trump future of the Republican Party may or may not be. Given all that, do you think there is a path forward, or is this just going to keep going until it burns out? Is that for Tim? I, I want to I hear you. <laughs> do I think this – you want to hear my perspective on it? Does, it burn, does the whole uh, Trump movement burn out? Is that the question? Well, Tyler? It does, not that it burns out, but like, well, I guess where does it, where does it go from here? Does this just accelerate for another 10, 20 years? Like, is it going to change in the short term, in the long term, and what could make that happen? So I don't I don't think it changes in the short term. Uh, it's it's a trend that started oh in the mid twenty um, tens. I would say that I started to notice the Republican party shifting in what I would call a more nationalist populist direction sometime around 2014, 2015, you know, when I came in on the tea party wave 2010 and I was in the state house before that too. And there was a sort of, uh, you know, the mini tea party movement at that time as well, that that was more of a libertarian individualist, um, uh, civil liberties sort of movement, very different from what took place later on. And the nationalist populist stuff, I started to notice creeping in in town halls. I'd go to a town hall and someone would talk, uh, you know, very warmly about nationalism and how, how wonderful it is to, you know, be nationalists. And I'd be like, uh, you don't really mean nationalist, right? You know, I'd be trying to explain to them what nationalism means, at least in the um, historical context. And that started to shift. It started to shift in that direction. And you could see people who were sort of like blue-collar, union-type Democrats starting to come over to the Republican Party more. I started to see it at town hall meetings. And Trump was really just a culmination of all that, in my opinion. So I think that um, this shift, this trend is going to continue for a little while longer, and I don't see it turning back anytime in the near future. I think you've got five, ten years. Parties obviously shift over time, so you can't say what the Republican Party will be in 20 years or whether it will even be a party. So 
who knows in the in the distant future. But I I think the future is not necessarily for the Republican Party, not necessarily people like um, Peter Meyer. No offense to Peter. Um, it's I think it's more like Ron DeSantis, people who embrace a lot of the MAGA stuff and try to fuse it with some of their their you know Reagan conservatism. There's like some kind of fusion that's going to go on where you essentially use MAGA rhetoric to push some of your more traditionally conservative positions, and I think that's what uh, DeSantis does. And he also plays the game of populism right he's on a lot of issues in florida he's going pretty strongly against what you'd call mainstream or traditional republican positions and he doesn't care he doesn't care it doesn't bother him one bit because a lot of the new republican voters they're not ideological in the same way like that it's it's more about a cultural thing than it is about particular issues so I don't know. That's that's my take. I think it stays the way it's. I, I think it stays the way it is for uh, a while longer. I don't think it's going to change anytime in the in the near future. Tim, what do you say? Yeah, I tend to agree with a lot of that. Um, there's no fad in politics that is permanent, and most of them aren't even durable. Right? Uh, we you know every time a big movement. Uh, gains a foothold in American life, uh, particularly in the realm of politics. We talk about, you know, uh, is this the, the, you know, the new permanent majority, whether it was the Obama coalition of the ascendant or after Bush wins in 04, Rove is talking about the, you know, the, the forever majority, whatever. There's no, there's no forever in politics. All of this is cyclical. And the fact of the matter is po- political parties are at their core uh, sort of um, – creatures that adapt and survive, right? They figure out what goes wrong and they fix it to remain relevant. And, uh, and so oftentimes it takes two or three beatings at the ballot box for a party to really recalibrate and go back to the drawing board and figure out what they got wrong and fix it. And then they come back and they win a bunch of elections and they think that it's going to last forever and inevitably it doesn't. So this sort of happens all the time. I, I, but I do think to your last point there, Justin, about DeSantis, what's interesting is that, you know, some of the conservative Republican orthodoxy of the kind of Reagan era and, and the Bush era to, to some extent as well, uh, is now completely irrelevant in today's Republican Party. Um, you know, I did write about this in my book. A lot of other people who are smarter than me have written about it. I mean, there's just... There's, it's hard to quantify, hard to measure just how little the positions of the Wall Street Journal editorial page matter to your average Republican primary voter at this point. Um, it's not to say that they disagree with them necessarily on, on some of these positions or even on most of these positions. It's just that that's not what they care about. It's not the thing that galvanizes them. It's not the thing that motivates them to, to, to vote and to engage with politics. The things that do motivate them we see time and time again, are the sort of culture war issues, uh, the matters around identity and uh, both individual identity, uh, sort of political identity and national identity. Um, you know, that stuff is really what moves the needle now. And, and I think to the point about DeSantis, 
you know, he can afford to pick a fight with Disney, even though it is sort of uh, egregiously in violation of long held Republican principles about, you know, what it means to 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 govern relative to uh, the private sector and to private industry and where the lines are that can and can't be crossed. Um, he can get away with that. Not only can he get away with it, but he can benefit from it politically uh, because it is scratching this, this, this cultural itch that so many folks have uh, on the right. And I tend to agree that, you know, guys like Peter Meyer, who look, both Justin and I uh, know him pretty well. We've, we've, we've talked with him. I, I just speaking for myself. Um, you know, I think he's a really uh, serious, thoughtful guy who, um, whether you agree or disagree with certain votes he's taken, if you spent some time around him and watched how he does his job, you'd sort of walk away thinking, yeah, you know, that's, that's a guy who I think probably deserves to be in Congress, or at least, you know, it should be in that conversation, right? Somebody who's qualified and who is intellectually curious and operates in good faith and wants to try and do the right thing, even if he doesn't always do the right thing, because that's just, you know, human nature. Um, but guys like that, are um, there's just not really an incentive structure to reward their good faith efforts. And we see that time and time and time again. And the result is uh, when you see how the balance of power has shifted in the Republican Party away from some of the good faith operators, away from people who have tried to be responsible and do things the right way, uh, and more and more oxygen is being sucked out of the room and more and more money is being raised by and more and more of the spotlight is being um, sort of gobbled up by the people who don't operate in good faith. Uh, it's, it's, it, it does paint a really troubling picture, at least in the short term. Um, but this too shall pass at least to some degree you have to, uh, it would defy everything, every trend we've ever seen in American life to, 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 to believe that, uh, this movement was going to permanently redefine the Republican party. It just probably won't, won't die out anytime real soon. Yeah, it's it's kind of like no good deed goes unpunished now. But in in terms of where the Republican Party is going and the Democratic Party is going, they may shift, but are they increasingly just spiraling in the wrong direction? In other words, we talked about the um the the incentive structure you mentioned. Isn't the incentive structure increasingly about theatrics about performance art about what you can do on twitter or on oan or fox news or wherever where you can go out there and not really be a legislator but instead be a mascot for your party or for your for your cultural identity whatever it is and isn't this really a problem that isn't just in one party but it's in both parties that increasingly like the idea of just performing for the camera is is the whole deal. Like that's what it means to be a member of Congress. You're not really legislating. I talked about this earlier. You're not it's it's so top down, so centralized. You're not really a legislator anymore. And all you've got left is to be a performer, to go on TV, to be the mascot for your team. And and in some sense, that's what's made the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Madison Cawthorns of modern times, and potentially someone like John Gibbs, right? That there's just it's a performance element. 
you're just an actor. You're not hired to be a legislator. You're hired to just represent us as sort of a, you know, our PR person. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I was halfway through your thought there. I was going to say, well, you sort of answered your own question, right? About the procedural breakdown is a direct, uh, has direct implications for the sort of incentive structure being warped the way that it has been. And you, you see this in politics, I think across the board, but it's particularly the case in Congress, um, where you do have such centralized, top-down procedural norms now where, you know, like you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, Justin. It's funny because we all remember when Marjorie Taylor Greene got kicked off of her committee assignments, right, um, after – I forget what the episode was. It was I think it was something about talking about Hitler or white nationalism or something, right, which is par for the course for her. And so – Kevin McCarthy, in a, in a rare moment of having a backbone, decides to throw Marjorie Taylor Greene off of whatever her committee assignment was. And, of course, this is like all that Marjorie Taylor Greene could ever hope for. Why would she want to be on a committee? Why would she want to spend her hours actually having to dig into legislation and attending subcommittee hearings and like gaining expertise on issues the you know, it's like having a high school kid who gets in trouble and then they get suspended for a week and they stay home and smoke pot and play video games all day. It's like, no, like that's not how you punish a kid for getting in trouble. You punish them by giving them more homework, by sending them to do extra school. You don't suspend them for the week. Right. And so it's kind of funny. Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's like, no, that you want to punish Marjorie Taylor Greene. You should give her additional committee assignments. You should give her more work to do. Uh, and yet, to your point about the centralization of Congress, it's not clear anymore that even the people who f- jostle and jockey to get these plum committee assignments, it's not clear that they're really doing a whole lot anyway, that they're, that they're really contributing to, uh, you know, contributing si- significantly to, to legislative outcomes. In many cases, they're not. We both know that. And so... The two things are very much interrelated, uh, and and it's a huge it's a huge problem, and and that's one where I'm actually much less optimistic about it's it it burning out because any study of the historical trajectory of this shows that it's just been getting worse and worse and worse over a pretty long period of time now. Yeah, unfortunately, the committee assignments themselves have become theatrical and scripted and uh, almost busy work. You're just showing up to read the script that someone else wrote for you. When when you watch these things on TV, a lot of people at home are unaware, I think, that especially the high-profile committees, the ones that are getting television audiences, national television audiences, those things are scripted out. Like someone hands you as a member of Congress, someone hands you the script, someone from your party hands you the script and says, you're going to read this. There's a reason why a lot of times they'll just talk for five minutes and then ask a question at the very end of that to the witness, whoever's there. It's because they don't actually know the issue very well. And what they want to do is run out the clock with some kind of nonsense and then at the end they throw out a question and they don't have to respond to it it's just a question for the for the committee's sake someone some staffer wrote it and wants to get an answer but doesn't want 
the member of Congress really getting in a back and forth because the member of Congress doesn't know anything. Well, in this kind of world, um, people just become total performers. You know, there's no, there's no thinking that has to go on anymore. And the, the committees were so meaningless that I used to, um, I used to say that if Paul Ryan wanted to punish me, he would put me on more committees. Hmm. I mean, that would like, <laughs> that would be the way, you know, put me on the small business committee or something. And that would be some, some real punishment. So, uh, let's go to our, let's go to our next caller. Let's go to Will. Oh, I think we lost Will. Well, let's see. He's back. Okay, yeah, figure it out. Yeah. Um, Yeah, just so kind of reiterating a lot of those points. Um, Obviously, great conversation. But um, so on committees like judiciary, like if you look at the composition of it, it seems like the, the people on that are kind of more of a, types that kind of rile up the bases from both sides and not like ones who will like necessarily fall in line with leadership, especially on the Republican side. Like, yeah. Yeah. Is that the, uh, are you asking or do you want me to comment on that? Yeah. 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 Cause I mean, a so, lot of them are like your, your, a lot of your, your friends, former Freedom caucus colleagues and not. Yeah. Like- so I don't see as someone who served in Congress and as someone who founded the Freedom Caucus, I don't see a big difference now between the establishment and the Freedom Caucus. I don't see a big difference between the establishment and Trump the way there used to be. You know, when this all started out, say 2015, 2016, things started shifting in this direction, there was a cleaner break between these groups and these identities. But increasingly, the establishment types view the Freedom Caucus types and the Trump types as just being tools in their own arsenal, right? They have their own agenda they want to get done, whether it's McConnell or, or McCarthy in the Senate and the House. Um, they have their own agenda they want to get done, and they will use these people to get it done because they know they don't have appeal with the populist base, but these people do. And I think Trump understood this pretty well, that if he could weaponize the Freedom Caucus and weaponize some of the, uh, some of the people, he could get things done that he wanted. And McConnell definitely understood this really well, Mitch McConnell, who I think had no love for Donald Trump, but started to realize that if he could weaponize populism, he might be able to get some of his own agenda through. So... I don't think that there is this huge difference anymore. Like you don't really see Kevin McCarthy cracking down on Marjorie Taylor Greene in any serious way. Uh, Madison Cawthorn, they basically let him go as long as he didn't say anything about um, Coke and orgies. Like as soon as, as soon as that happened, they were like, we've got to, we have just have to put an end to this Madison Cawthorn stuff. But up to that point, they were pretty much, they were pretty much okay with what he was doing. It wasn't really a backlash. Getting upset, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess maybe it hit a little too close to home for them. So, um, 
yeah, judiciary and other committees, they do tend to have people who are um, going to rally the base. And that's because they get on TV for some of these high profile issues. So if you can put people on judiciary who are going to uh, essentially rile up that populist base, that's good. They don't need to be lawyers. They don't need to be judges. And you increasingly see that where on committees, the people on the committees don't even have expertise in those areas. What they have expertise in is being a rabble rouser, being someone who can get the crowd charged up. It's, it's not about are they a great lawyer or a great judge. Um, take someone like Jim Jordan, who uh, is a lawyer, but not someone who's like got a deep history of practicing law. But you know what he's very good at is performing in committee. He's very good at taking off his jacket and getting everyone angry, whipping people into a frenzy. And Kevin McCarthy will use him that way. I mean, Remember that before the Trump era, McCarthy and Jordan did not get along at all. I mean, McCarthy and Jordan were arch enemies. They ran against each other for leadership positions. They were, you know, they were on opposite ends of the Republican Party. And now they're buddies. And now when you hear uh, McCarthy running for speaker, potentially, Jim Jordan at least what I've heard in the recent past is all on board. He's all on board. Jim Jordan from four or five years ago would not have been all on board. That, that Jim Jordan would have said under no circumstances can we have Kevin McCarthy as speaker of the house. And today's Jim Jordan says, yes, Kevin McCarthy, because Kevin McCarthy has our back. Now Kevin McCarthy is for our theatrics. He is for MAGA. He is for Trump. And as long as Kevin McCarthy is willing to back us up, we will back him up. And that's that's the way I see it now. Yeah. Very quickly, I would just piggyback on that point. Everything you just said, it highlights the degree to which, yes, there was for 10 years or so a Republican war, a Republican civil war um, that – you know, I've documented very closely that I wrote this book about that was the subtitle of the book was the, you know, on the front lines of the Republican Civil War. And when Bush left office, there was a legitimate, you know, a fight for the party, for the identity of the party, for the heart and the soul and the future of the party. And as I said earlier, sometimes it was kind of seen as, you know, conservative versus establishment or moderate versus Tea Party, outsiders versus insiders, however you want to think about it. But ultimately, the Civil War was fought, and the Civil War is over, and Trump won it, right? And that's, that, you know, it, it, it goes back to the very first question you asked about um, kind of what happened last night and how we understand that, you know, so much of this just now is binary. It's not about the issues. It's not about the money. It's not about the campaign organization. It's not about local endorsements. It's about this very simple, are you with Trump or are you against Trump? And the, that point rings true on the congressional side of it, as well as on the campaign side of it. And so, yeah, like when, you know, when you see now these, these former factions that used to be at one another's throats in Congress that are now entirely on the same page and marching in lockstep, 
that would have been unimaginable five or six years ago. And you ask yourself, how did this happen? Well, because all of these people realized that Trump was more popular than they were and that and that um, whatever side battles they were fighting with one another were ultimately going to pale in comparison to this much bigger fight that was happening, that Trump uh, had basically taken over the party. And um, and if you weren't going to get in line, then you were going to have to get out. We saw it in 2018 uh, with Flake and with Sanford and with Corker and with a couple of others. Uh, you left the party. We see it uh, now with, you know, of the 10 House Republicans who voted for impeachment, it looks like probably three will be back in the next Congress, right? That gives you a pretty, a pretty clear indication of, um, of how Trump's, it's not just this question of like, oh, does Trump control the party? But again, it's sort of Trump changed the party. Trump created a new uh, sort of hierarchy in the party and a, and a new uh, litmus test that defines what it means to be a conservative or what it means to be a Republican. And so, yeah, that's how you've got guys like McCarthy and Jordan now singing Kumbaya. Five years ago, they had very def- different definitions of what it meant to be a conservative, what it meant to be a Republican. And today, their definition is very similar. Yeah. Do you think someone like Peter Meyer could have been more successful in this campaign if he had had more time to develop a constituency? In other words, he was a freshman. He very quickly, after starting, voted for impeachment before anyone knew anything about him. So in some ways, he, he you know, he was defined by that from the moment he entered Congress in a way that never was a problem for me because I was in Congress quite a while before I had to deal with some of this Trump stuff and before I voted for impeachment. And in that sense, my constituents knew more about me by the time I did it and were more willing to forgive than, say, someone like Peter, who had no reputation one way or another. He was a new person. He hadn't developed an identity and hadn't really developed a base in a constituency. Could he have pulled it out, you know, in such a close race? Could he have won if he just were a third-term congressman or a fourth-term congressman rather than a first-term? You know, it's a really good question. Uh, I think, yeah, the answer is probably yes. I thought you were going to ask me a slightly different question, which is related, which is could he have pulled it out had he appealed to Democrats to cross over and vote in the Republican primary? Well, that's, that's a related question. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, and that's something I've talked uh, with uh, some folks here in Michigan about, and I think uh, the answer is yeah. Uh, you know, look, Here's the thing uh, that I think some folks maybe fail to appreciate about what the Democrats did in in throwing all this money uh, into the district to help Gibbs. Because it got so much attention, because it drew uh, so many headlines, Democrats in some way were giving a green light to Democrats in West Michigan to, to, to themselves go and meddle in that primary, to, to themselves go and vote for Gibbs because he they because they would be weakening Meyer 
they would be uh, potentially helping to nominate a, a, a badly flawed Republican who it would be much easier for them to defeat come November. Um, you know, in Michigan, there's no party registration. You show up and they give you a ballot and you can either vote on the Democratic side or you can vote on the Republican side. That's the way it is. And, you know, I, it, it, it's impossible to prove or uh, who voted which way and why, but there is a long and rich history in Michigan elections of people doing exactly that, of, of voting for the person. I mean, there were a ton of Trumpies, for example, who came out in 2020 in the Democratic primary and they voted for Bernie Sanders here uh, because they thought that he would be very easy to beat in a general election. Um, so in, you know, yesterday in West Michigan, you know, Skolton is, is running unopposed. Gretchen Whitmer is running unopposed. Uh, yeah, there's some local races that you could vote in that if you're really invested in, in local democratic politics, then maybe you want to vote. But if you're just somebody who's kind of more of a national political person and you're looking at the landscape here, you would have had every reason to go ahead and meddle in that Republican primary and to vote for Gibbs over Meyer. My suspicion is that there was probably some not insignificant number of folks who did that. And in a really close race that wound up being decided by, I think, a couple thousand votes, you know, that can absolutely make a difference. Now, on the flip side of it is this question you and I are discussing here is, had Meyer made the decision uh, months ago, the strategic choice to say, listen, um, I, am, I, I am a conservative Republican, but I've also branded some of my major choices in Congress as being country over party. And, and, I, and I think that I need to, the only way maybe that I can survive this primary is by campaigning in a similar way, by reaching out, by sending mail to Democratic households, by targeting Democratic voters and saying, hey, the forces, the anti-Democratic forces in this country that we're both worried about, they are out to get me. And whatever you decide to do come fall, I hope that you'll consider voting for me in this primary because we can't afford to have... MAGA extremists on the ballot in November. I, I think that that's a, I think that there was some consideration given to that. Ultimately, they decided not to do it. But my, my sense is that had they done that, he probably winds up winning. And I think it depends a bit on to what extent you believe the public knows that the district is now a Democratic district. Right. Um, there is a perception in West Michigan, for those who aren't from here, there's a perception in West Michigan that the district is very Republican. And that's because in something like a hundred years, only one Democrat has ever represented the Grand Rapids metro area roughly. In a hundred years, one Democrat. So it's it strikes people as, well, this must be one of the most Republican, conservative places on earth. And we've got a big um constituency of conservative Christians in the area. We have a lot of churches. It is the kind of place that might strike someone as a very Republican place. It's a little more like Utah than it is like, say, the South, though. You know, the the conservatives here are more moderate in their sensibilities in many ways than what you typically see, like on Fox News or OAN or or... Alex Jones or, or whatever. So the, 
Nonetheless, the sense in the district, if you go talk to people, is this is a very Republican area. And if people think that, then yeah, I think Meyer appealing to them might work because they might think, well, the Democrat doesn't really have a shot. Mm. And Meyer appeals to them and they say, I want Meyer over Gibbs. So yeah, I'll go with Meyer. But if enough people think that the district is now a Democratic district, maybe it doesn't work anyways. Like you can appeal to them, but they're like, hey, like we know that Hillary's in the driver's seat, Hillary Scolton. So why, why help Meyer out? So I think that is a, that's a factor that comes into play. But there's another thing I think about, which is I was looking at some of the um, campaign ads that Meyer's campaign was running toward the end. And they were very clearly tailored to a conservative base, a very conservative base. There was stuff about, um, I think, border security. There's stuff about drag shows. Uh, there's stuff about war, you know, being really tough in war. It's, it's very clearly like red meat stuff for the conservative base. I do wonder whether he would have been better leaning into more of the Jerry Ford, Vern Ehlers. I am a moderate um, Republican who will serve with integrity and honor. And I'm just, I'm a very comfortable person to have there rather than I'm competing with Gibbs for the diehard conservatives. It's hard to say, it's hard to know because you can't like replay all these things, but it is also possible that some of his strong constituency, the people who would be natural supporters of his, weren't as enthusiastic as they needed to be because he was playing his campaign toward a more right-wing market and not playing to that more Jerry Ford traditional Republican sort of base. Yeah, look, these are conversations that I've had with him where um... – and we're, of course, Monday morning quarterbacking this thing. Yep. But these are legitimate questions to ask. And I think after you take that vote for impeachment, there are really two paths ahead. You can either kind of hang your hat on it and say, listen, I made this call and here's why I made it. And here's why it is um, it is sort of indistinguishable from my broader political brand and, and, the, and the way in which I approach politics. Uh, or you can sort of pivot away from it and, you know, maybe not disown it completely, but really uh, make it um, kind of deleverage it uh, as far as uh, your campaign strategy goes, make it a, a, an afterthought in the minds of a lot of voters Meyer obviously has cho- cho- chose the latter path. And while I don't know that like leading with impeachment everywhere he went was ever going to help him win, I do think that in the wake of the impeachment vote, he was surprised by just how strong the backlash was from the conservative base, the county party censuring him and whatnot. And I think it spooked him to a certain degree, and he felt like maybe he needed to try to overcompensate a little bit. And... That's to your point about some of the ads, particularly late in the race. Um, and, and the thing is, you know, Meyer 
is I think he is a, a pretty conservative guy, but he's not like an arch conservative. He's not a hardcore, like right winger type. And authenticity matters in politics. People know when you're trying to sort of present yourself maybe as something that you're not. And the most comfortable I ever saw Meyer in his own skin, frankly, was when he was talking about January 6th, when he was talking about the decisions that he had to make. I mean, he felt in those moments to be very authentic. Uh, and then there were other times where you'd see him straining a little bit to try to be something that maybe he wasn't entirely. And so I understand the need to try to stop the bleeding with the conservative base because, uh, you know, if, if Gibbs just clobbers him like three to one among self-described very conservative voters, then he probably gets smashed in that primary. So I understand that you've got to do more than one thing and that you've got to try to appeal to somebody. But if you don't have a base in politics, it's really hard to win. And it seemed like in this race, to your point, Meyer never necessarily had a base, um, that he was trying to be in some instances and in, some, and in front of some in crowds and in certain environments, he was trying to be one guy and then he was trying to be another guy and sort of in, in some other crowds. Not That's not to call him sort of hypocritical or uh, insincere or anything like that. I just think as a tactical matter, his branding seemed a little bit muddled. And this is what I wrote. I, I wrote a long piece about him last year. This is I wrote about it then. And this was central to a lot of the conversations we were having, because, look, Liz Cheney is probably not going to win her primary either. But you're going to have the, a very clear idea about who Liz Cheney is the day after she loses her primary. Right. And I don't know that we have that very clear idea of, of who Peter Meyer is, because I think he spent a lot of this campaign sort of walking on eggshells a little bit and kind of moving back and forth and kind of trying to figure out what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And had he more forcefully, again, it's not about just like coming out every campaign stop and being like, yeah, Donald Trump is, uh, is the enemy of the Republic. I'm glad I voted to impeachment. It's not about that, but had he been more, um, had he been a little bit more assertive in, in defining himself as a guy who says, listen, and by the way, it's consistent with his voting record, right? He voted for red flag laws. Uh, he voted for a couple of spending bills that uh, many Republicans didn't vote for. Um, he voted uh, just a week or two ago for the, the, the CHIPS uh, Act, right? Like this is a guy who he does want to try and take a half a loaf. He, he does want, he does tend toward bipartisanship when it's at all possible, and there's nothing wrong with that, particularly in a district like the one he's representing. But it felt like he didn't necessarily want to hang his hat on any of that uh, during certain t- certain stretches of the race. One of the things I think about, because I put together that exploratory committee for president um, in 20, I guess in 2020. And one of the things I think about is how COVID affected that in that. I ultimately uh, backed away from it, and part of the calculation, a pretty big part, was that with COVID going on, I couldn't do the things I needed to do to get traction. And the things I needed to do to, do to get traction was um, be in front of big crowds, talk to people, get around, go to doors. Um, I needed to be able to just like be present in ways that you can't when COVID is going on and you might need to like, you know, you hold an event somewhere and you need cameras and you need people and you can't hold those big events 
whether it's a town hall or some meeting at a bar or a restaurant or whatever it is, and then, you know, TV comes in and they film it and they're, they're showing you on the campaign trail. You can't really do that in COVID. And I do wonder to what extent that really hobbled uh, Peter in his campaign ultimately because he couldn't get out in the same way, at least for a while. I mean, obviously in recent months it's been easier, but in the early part of his tenure as, as a congressman, he couldn't really do the things he needed to 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 make a presence in the district and define himself and have people really relate to him, you know, shake his hand, look him in the eye, ask him questions face to face. There weren't as many opportunities because of COVID. I do wonder how much that might affect uh, a campaign like Peter's, especially because he was a freshman. It, it goes back to the point about never developing that constituency, never developing that base, never developing the reputation, and, and how for someone who's been there for four or five terms, it's one thing if you're not out there shaking hands with voters in your district, but if you're brand new, they don't really know much about you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean... I think he got around the district a fair bit. He, of course, it's always hard for a freshman because you're trying to figure out your first few months on the job uh, in any normal environment. And, of course, this was not a normal environment for him. His third day on the job, the, sca- the, 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 the walls of the Capitol are being scaled by, by rioters. But I think even in a normal environment, those first few months on the job, are pretty disorienting. You're trying to figure out your staff and your schedule and you're taking wrong turns in the Capitol tunnels and then you're flying back home trying to figure out, okay, so who do we go talk to? So it's, uh, and then, you know, given the extraordinary nature of how his term began and, and, you know, he'd been on the job for what, 10 days when he took this vote to impeach Trump. And then suddenly he's getting death threats and he's going off the grid with his wife for a little while and then he's coming back and he's getting censured by the county party. The state Republican chairman is joking about assassinating him, right? They're like, so um, I don't know if it's COVID as much. I do think that COVID plays some some part in it. But I, I also have to think, Justin, from, from I spent a lot of last summer, like this time a year ago, I was all over his district with him, without him, watching him, just observing him. Um, I think a lot of it was just, uh, a guy, a young guy who, I mean, he's, you know, he's younger than both of us. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a young guy who was brand new to this and who was a little bit rattled by the, uh, the ferocity of, of that blowback. Right. And so I think he's in addition to COVID making him careful about where he goes, I think just politically, he was a little bit careful about where he goes. Right. Not that he thinks somebody's going to like jump out of a shadowy corner and like try to kill him necessarily, but just like, I think, you know, like he, you know, he told me some story, like he'd show up to a state fair and some guy came up and screamed in his face that he was an MFing traitor, right? Like that kind of thing will uh, make you a little bit tentative and, and maybe a little bit reluctant to, uh, to, to, to just go out and start shaking hands and trying to kiss babies. Maybe you're a little bit more calculated about where you go and who you talk to and who you're going to be with. So I actually think that that probably played a role in it too. Yeah. And he's got the, the double scenario of being a congressman and also being high profile anyway, just being part of the Meyer family. 
So it, and that, that creates its own kind of tension where if you are well off and you're well known and now you get to be the congressman and then now you do something that pisses people off, it's like the, the venom against you is even greater. Like this person came, this person who's got it made in, in their minds has come in and made it to Congress and now is, you know, hurting us in this other way as they see it. I think it, it ratchets things up. Well, yeah. And listen, I, I, I remember very vividly uh, sitting one night at a bar with him in West Michigan. We're having some beers and he's showing me on his cell phone. He'd scrolled back to January 6th and he's showing me all these messages he's, he had gotten as the Capitol was under attack. And in the subsequent hours uh, as they're in hiding and then eventually the building is secured and they're able to come back into the chamber and vote on whether to certify the election results. And in that five, six, seven hour stretch, he's showing me all these text messages he's getting from people, including like some pretty prominent Republicans. Not these are not just like crazy people. These are like business owners, major donors, uh, party types who are like telling him, like, don't wimp out, dude. Like you better like those are patriots who, who just were in that building. Like you better stand with them. Right. And again, I think it's now that it's almost two years in the rear view. Well, year and a half or so in the rear view. I think we we've maybe kind of consciously or subconsciously um, distanced ourselves from from the sting and the intensity of that day. But I think, again, like this guy, having lived through it and having been so new to the job when all of that happened, I don't say this lightly, but I do think there's some degree of like PTSD involved with all of this for him, where it was suddenly here were all of these people who had supported him who are screaming at him and telling him that he's a traitor uh, right after he's elected, that's bound to make you a little gun shy about how you campaign moving forward. You know, and I think we saw that. Yeah. And these were probably people who were texting me and screaming at me before that. So, (laughs) and, and that maybe is what magnifies it, right? Like some of these people, and I know the people, I know the, I know the donor types who were upset with me about impeachment and probably look to him as a way to right the ship, right? Yeah. We got we got Amash out of there, and now we've got someone new. And then on, what, day three, he's doing the thing Amash did as they see it. And can you believe the way this guy burned us? That's I think that's how a lot of them view it. And in some ways, it it does sting them more than my vote for impeachment. Yeah. Because it, it, it feels to them more like a betrayal. And probably the, uh, the stuff that comes down after that is, is in some ways more intense from those particular types of, of donors. The ones, who, the ones who put their money in to support his campaign and, and um, the voters who said, hey, we're using you as a way to start over after Amash um, burned us. Mm-hmm. As they see it again. No, that, I think that's... Yeah. That's a great point. They had already, with you, it was already baked in that you were sort of a, a wild card and that you kind of marched to your own. Yeah. They, never, they never liked me really anyways. I mean, no. I'm, talking, I'm, talking about the, I'm talking about the establishment donors, but the ones, a lot of the establishment donors ended up being uh, pretty strong MAGA people. You know, even in West Michigan, you get that. And... These people were giving me a hard time. You know, the transition I saw, which was 
fascinating to me is that a lot of these people, when I first got into Congress, were giving me a hard time for not playing ball with the Republicans, with the establishment Republicans, right? Like, why aren't you aligned more with Boehner or with Ryan? And then when Trump comes along, it's now, why aren't you aligned more with Trump? So they're not satisfied with any of it. It's like you, you either you either got to be with the establishment because they're the ones in charge or you got to be with Trump because he's the one in charge. They're more power-seeking in a sense, right? Whoever's got the most power, they want you as the congressman to be aligned with that power. They want you to have proximity to that power. Right, right. Yeah. They want you to have proximity to that power. So – when it's John Boehner and Paul Ryan, they're like, yeah, you've got to be in there. You've got to be with them. And then when it's John, Donald Trump, they're like, yeah, you've got to be in with Donald Trump. You've got to protect Donald Trump and stand with him because he's our guy. He's the guy with power. And so they shift. And, and so I experienced that throughout my term. And then Meyer comes along and I think gives the impression to them <coughs> that um, – bless you. I think gives the impression to them. Um, that it's going to be a, a a new start, and he doesn't know January sixth, you know, rioting is going to happen. Meyer doesn't know that in advance. So when he's campaigning, he's not campaigning thinking, "Oh, I'm going to have to vote to impeach Donald Trump in the last few weeks of his presidency." He's just he's like not thinking that way. So it's not like Meyer's making some kind of you know calculated mistake or something he's just <laughs> some, some great bait and switch where right he, i'm in there i can get on with my secret agenda of getting rid of trump right right no it's a totally unexpected thing i don't think he's thinking like i can't wait to get in there to vote to impeach trump or anything it just it happened and he took i i, I think he did the right thing you know he did what he believed in and he did the right thing um but I, th- I think we all understand how that's going to rub people, especially people who view him as a renewal after the Justin Amash era, era someone who's going to come in and maybe this guy will be the team player that Amash wasn't. And then he comes in and he's not the team player in that sense, at least. Yeah, and the cruel irony of everything you're describing there as far as what the expectations are uh, from donors, from establishment types, uh, kind of longtime party members is uh you know that they want you to have that proximity to power but then they'll turn around and complain that uh that that politicians are just sort of programmable robots who don't do any thinking for themselves and who have forgotten about the little guy etc etc and 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 this is supposed to be representative government i mean you made the point earlier about how it's almost like representative government in name only what would that be uh Mm -hmm. A Regino, right? Uh, but like, it, I just I just call it an oligarchy for short. Yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> this is right. I mean, you have a guy like Meyer who, listen, uh, I I have some issues with the way that he's gone about. Uh, you know, the the, the post impeachment era. Uh, you know, they're documented. I've written about it, talked about it. But I do, on the whole, think that he's a a good guy, a pretty honest guy, a decent guy who's tried to do the right thing uh, in, under some tough circumstances. And, and, and part of doing the right thing, I think for any good member of Congress is, okay, am I representing my district? And for Meyer, I think he looked around on January 3rd, uh, January uh, 6th, rather, three days into the job. He looks around, sees this happening, and he's like, 
this is unacceptable to the people of my district. This is not how we do things in West Michigan. This is not how we settle our differences. And uh, regardless of the text messages he was getting from some of these people, he's thinking to himself, you know, there's no way that the whole of my district, there's no way that even the whole of the Republican base in my district can be okay with this. So he, he decides to take the, the, the hard vote, uh, the vote that a lot of Republicans wish that they could have taken, but they realize that they would be, you know, out, out of a job the same way that Meyer is, the same way that Kinziger is, the, way, the same way that Cheney is, right? And so, you know, he did what he thought was right in representing the people of his district. But what we've seen time and time again, contrary to the old Tip O'Neill, all politics is local mantra, is that actually all politics are national. You know, politics mm-hmm. is not the ground up business that we necessarily want to think that it is. It, it is incredibly top down. It is incredibly centralized. And Meyer is not going to be the last victim of that, I think. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, I think that's my line. All politics is national. So. What do you see in the rest of Michigan? We had a governor's race, um, a primary here. That was fairly predictable because you had essentially what people would think of as the establishment, the DeVos camp backing Tudor Dixon, and then Trump comes in and backs the same candidate. That makes it just you know, uh, a given that this person is in a commanding position, right? Like there's no there's no way anyone else had a shot, especially after the other the main contenders didn't make the ballot. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because Tudor Dixon was nobody's idea of a shock and awe, clear the field sort of candidate. Uh, I mean, she entered the race with almost no name ID, no money, not somebody who had deep connections in the party. Um, and really was not taken seriously by a lot by a lot of people. And because two of the strongest candidates initially, uh, Perry Johnson, the businessman, and, and James Craig, the, the former uh, Detroit police chief, who I think probably would have been the strongest candidate in a general election. I mean, you never know until they start running the race, right? But um, I think James Craig was going to be very formidable. There were people who sat down with him early on who came, you know, serious political people who came away being like, yeah, this guy is going to be really good. He's the real deal. He's got a lot of just natural political ability. So when those two were disqualified from the ballot, it became a total jump ball. And suddenly somebody like Tudor Dixon, who had not been terribly well positioned to, to make any serious viable run at the nomination, she had as good a chance as anybody. And the rest of the field frankly, was was pretty weak and, and pretty fractured. There was nobody who really staked a strong claim to any significant chunk of the Republican electorate here. Um, this was not, you know, like in 2010 when you had Snyder and Cox and who else ran in that gubernatorial primary, I'm forgetting. But they had they kind of sliced and diced the electorate pretty good, and they were all running in kind of distinct lanes that wasn't necessarily the case in this race. There was a lot of overlap. There was nothing that was incredibly distinct about any of the candidates except the one who was arrested by the FBI for his role on January 6th. And uh, so anyway, Tudor Dixon emerges victorious, but there are a lot of question marks around her, Justin. I mean, we, um, we saw this result in Kansas last night as far as the, the referendum on, on, on abortion law in the state. 
And what a shock it was to see in a deep red state like Kansas, you know, by an 18 point margin, the voters there saying, no, we, you know, we want abortion to, to be legal here. Um, I think abortion is, it, it, we haven't seen in the immediate aftermath of Roe being overturned, the sort of massive nationwide protest sustained groundswell of opposition. And so because we haven't necessarily seen that, I think a lot of folks thought, well, this isn't going to have the political implications that we expected. I'm not so sure of that still. I think come November in some of these uh, tight general election contests, you're going to see it play a pretty meaningful role. And I think that this is a race for governor in Michigan where uh, Gretchen Whitmer is pretty far to the left on abortion. And uh, Tudor Dixon is pretty far to the right on abortion. There is th- th- there is a sharp contrast here. And uh, Tudor Dixon's uh, positions are, I think, going to be characterized uh, as, as very extreme, very far out of the mainstream, even for Republicans. And that could really hurt her. Uh, so Whitmer is flawed. Uh, I talked on another podcast just last week about, I think, some of the mistakes she's made and how she's made herself vulnerable. Um but I don't know that Tudor Dixon is uh, is the is the Republicans' great hope of, of of beating her. I mean, she could win. I think this is going to be a good cycle for Republicans in a lot of ways, and so she could ride just sort of the strong fundamentals and and beat Whitmer. But um, I don't think it's anything like a foregone conclusion. I've talked to a couple people this week who have said like, oh yeah, Whitmer's going down. And I, I, I don't know. I think she's going to be tougher to beat than some people realize. Yeah. When, when the two leading candidates didn't make the ballot, I do feel like some of the political establishment here looked around and they were like, what's left? Like, what do we got left? And they were, they were like, well, Tudor Dixon looks like the most rational of whatever's left. Mm-hmm. Like we we don't have a lot of good choices here, and so let's let's go with her. Um, the other ones are just are too far out there, or just have have no real chance against Whitmer, and so they just they went with it. Um, and can she be a strong candidate? Possibly. I think my sense is that Whitmer kind of recognized that she was making mistakes in the heaviest period of COVID lockdowns that she was coming out and doing all these press conferences and doing a lot of stuff that in a 50, 50 state like Michigan, which it's close to 50, 50, it's not exactly 50, 50, but close to it. That in a state like Michigan might burn too many bridges with people with, especially with Republican or even independent voters and you can't do it. And my sense is when she started to pull back from that, like all of a sudden we didn't hear anything from Gretchen Whitmer. Like she went completely radio silent for a long time and her poll numbers started to go back up. Yeah. Uh, So it seems like right now she's in a pretty strong position against a lot of these political wins that are going in the other direction. Does that mean that Whitmer wins? Um, Not necessarily, but I think that she probably has the better position. She's the she's probably at least in most people's minds the stronger candidate. I'm to be clear, I'm not a fan of Gretchen Whitmer, so I want to be clear about that. Um, so I'm just trying to analyze this objectively. I think she's probably in the minds of most people in Michigan a stronger candidate, even though, like I said, I'm not voting for her. I'm not a fan. 
but um, Tudor Dixon maybe has potential to get off the ground here because she she has I think she could be maybe cast as an appealing candidate if she is coached the right way and changes some of her tune. You know, the other, yeah, I think the other part about it is uh, Michigan doesn't have one-term governors, right? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to look it up right now because I can't, I'm trying to remember when is the last one-term governor that we had? Um, um, it would be, hold on, let me find this. This is, um, you know, they say like America doesn't do one-term presidents, but that's not entirely true. We've had plenty of one-term presidents. The last one-term governor we had was Romney, and it's because he left Wilf. Oh, no, he got elected to a second term, though, so he just didn't do two full terms. How, let's see. Um, it's I mean, been a while. We have to go all the way back to – my goodness, when is it? Uh, Harry Kelly in the 40s? Uh, it looks like. Or maybe – Um, well, you have to go pretty far back, way far back. Anyway, so yeah, point being, without boring your listeners to tears here. Yeah, it's been it's been decades. Let's put it that way. Many decades, and yeah, so like that's that's just another interesting thing. Um, you know, uh, Snyder uh, looked pretty vulnerable in fourteen. He won. Uh, Granholm looked pretty vulnerable in six. She won. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it'll be, um, and granted, both of those years were pretty strong years for their parties. And this does not look like a terribly strong year for Democrats. Although again, I'm not at all bought in on the idea that this is going to be like some thunderous Republican wave. I actually think Biden probably bottomed out earlier in the summer. And you're now seeing, uh, by virtue of a combination of things, legislation that's moved through Congress recently, um, the uh, the uh, fallout, the continuing fallout from Roe being overturned, um, gas prices coming back down to earth a little bit. You're, I think you're seeing sort of a, a confluence of events now that are probably going to mitigate some of the damage done to the Dems this fall, uh, as, which is not to say that they're going to suddenly have a good year. I don't think they'll have a good year, but I don't think you're going to see Republicans just, you know, crush Democrats the way that maybe some people expected they would a couple of months ago. Yeah, and it looks like Republicans will win the House, um, but the U.S. Senate, nobody knows. I mean, nobody. that yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, so, what? well, on the abortion issue, you brought this up with respect to how it might affect races like Michigan's race. It seems to me like at the federal level, it's easy for Republicans to win the argument by saying, look, we're just saying make it a state's issue. Yes. And a lot of people will say, okay, we don't agree with you on abortion, but we can at least accept that. Like, as a, I think you can find enough Americans who say that is like at least a, a reasonable or rational position. But where Republicans and some Democrats are going to run into problems – is when they are in their states and in state governments, they take very extreme positions. Right. And this can happen on the right and the left. You could have on the right, 
the kind of thing that happened in Texas, where you start to have essentially uh, almost like bounty hunters for people who are doing uh, in, involved in abortions. Um, like you, you, you're going to snitch on your neighbors, and then you're going to get some money for it, uh, which is an, or an extreme position, and not good for Americans generally. I mean, even set aside the abortion issue, this kind of system where we are essentially paying people to be snitches on their neighbors is not good. And conservatives should be concerned about it because it'll be used against gun rights. It'll be used against a whole host of issues that conservatives care about. Oh, can you find the neighbor who has an AR-15? You'll get some money for that. Um, So I think conservatives should be worried about that. But... Democrats, Democrats too, could go to the extreme in the other direction. My sense is that most Americans probably think that uh, abortion is acceptable under certain circumstances, and particularly in early stages, and probably think things like a 12-week 12, 12 or 15-week cutoff is um, like a, a practical approach. That's probably what most, where most Americans are at. But they're not for abortion up until birth, and they're not for no abortion ever under any circumstance, and you're going to snitch on your neighbors. And now you've got state governments that are going to have to deal with this. And how they deal with it, I think, will, will dramatically affect politics. A Republican and Democratic politics, whether they can be successful or not successful in their states. If you take a really radical position one way or the other, I'm not sure you can be successful, but your base is going to be driving you in that direction. Yeah, I completely agreed. Like, be, it's one of these be careful what you wish for things, right? Uh, you know, you want to send it back to the states, okay, but you better realize what what's going to the the practical implication is that, and you know this, you served in Lansing. In a lot of state legislatures, if you think Congress is filled with a bunch of nincompoops and failed lawyers and people who sort of fell upward in life, uh, wait till you see some of these state legislatures, right? The, the, these are not necessarily the best and the brightest. And a lot of these folks, similar to Congress, don't really have a seat at the table in terms of trying to craft meaningful policy, they are they're, uh, getting their kicks in by uh, basically waging war against the other side, uh, you know, trying to kind of become celebrities in their local communities, doing the entertaining bit, as you described it earlier. And so you kick one of the most divisive issues in American life back to the states. And in a lot of these states, you have a lot of cartoon characters who are trying to write policy or who are trying to at least dictate popular narratives around policy. And it's going to hurt both of these parties. You're going to, you're, you, uh, you've already started to see some instances of it. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, look, look at what happened in Michigan this past week, right? Look at the uncertainty with these kind of volleying court rulings in, in successive, like in the same day earlier this week, right? You have this whiplash of court rulings of what, so wait, is abortion going to be legal? Is it going to be outlawed? Is it going to be legal for some people under certain circumstances in certain parts of the state? How is this going to work? 
Some county prosecutors are saying that they won't go along with it. They won't, they won't prosecute. So you better believe that in a state that is pretty darn close to 50-50, to your point earlier, and with a governor who has been on the front foot for months about this, making it central now to her governorship, but wink and nod, really central to her re-election campaign, you better buckle up in Michigan for the next three months of your television sets and your YouTube advertisements just being flooded with messages about abortion. Um, It's not, I think, I think more than the economy, more than, at least coming from the Democratic side, that is, more than the economy, more than, uh, you know, any other, you know, healthcare, education, any other climate, uh, democracy on the ballot. I feel like more than all of those other issues combined, the democratic message is going to be all about abortion is going to abortion is going to dominate the, 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 the messaging, the campaign messaging coming from the democratic side. And the question really then becomes, what is the message from the Republican side? Are they, will they proactively, and if you're Tudor Dixon, you know, are you proactively going to try and um, uh, own that issue and uh, sort of separate uh separate yourself from those democratic attacks or are you just going to choose to try and change the focus rather than rather than playing defense on that issue are you going to try and uh sort of pivot away from abortion and other social issues and really try and make it about the economy about inflation about gas prices there's a really interesting chess match here that's going to play out and um obviously this is there are big real world implications, so I don't mean to make it sound like it's just some interesting horse race thing that we're watching. But, you know, the art of politics matters. Uh, and uh, and the abortion question, again, for somebody like Tudor Dixon, who's got some views that are outside of that mainstream you just described. Um, and, 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 you know, to I think I'm not sure, Justin, you may know the answer to this. I would have to research it because, to be fair... I don't know. Whitmer may also be outside of that mainstream you described. I, I, I am not sure that I know her exact position on the limitation, the term limitation, uh, when she would be okay with abortion not being permissible, uh, not being lawful. Um, and, if, and if she is for abortion all the way up until delivery, then she would also be outside of that main, mainstream. So do Republicans actually counterattack her in that regard. I don't know, but what I do know is that I think it's Michigan is going to be maybe in some respects like ground zero for that because whoever the next governor is, they're going to be signing some sort of abortion law. You, I mean, that's just the reality of it now. Yeah, and I, and I don't know where she is either. And in some ways, when Roe v. Wade was considered the law of the land, it was a lot easier for all of these candidates. They just had to be for Roe v. Wade or yeah. against Roe v. Wade. And even if someone on the right said, hey, I'm not for um, abortion except in like these very minor cases, uh, like uh, a lot of people would make the exception for rape and incest, for example, they never had to really test out like a two-week abortion ban or a three-week or four because it, it just never came up as a as a proposal. It was – it was more generally things that they thought might push the court ultimately or, you know, test sort of test the waters as you saw with the 15 week uh, proposal. So 
now they're in a position where it's like a free for all. They can they can try to do what they like, and I think a lot of them are going to get burned by this. A lot of the politicians, you know, they're going to just they're going to overreach, and um, the public's not going to be with them because the public is the public at large is not where the activists are on this issue. The activists have um, very like radical positions on these things, and the public at large is not there. Right. So let me before you go, let me ask you about Arizona. Um, I, I think the governor's race there, the primary race, is not yet called. Is that is that right? Yeah. We don't not, know. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. So, um, but Blake Masters running for U.S. Senate, and I don't know how much you've covered him or or looked at him as a candidate, but Blake Masters seems like he walked away with it. Um, and he had a lot of support from the right. He had support from, uh, I know, the Club for Growth and other organizations. What's interesting about this is that he's basically running as a national populist, right? Sort of like this new national conser- nationalist conservative sort of movement or national conservative. And... I find it interesting that a lot of these outside groups, like the Club for Growth, who are not, uh, at least at their heart, historically, not populist groups, but rather free market organizations, right? They're about capitalism and free markets, and sometimes that runs um, that runs against populism. It runs against nationalism, for sure, on issues like trade, for example. Yeah. Yet you see these groups now supporting people like Blake Masters. What does this mean that a lot of the groups that once were the you know beacons of capitalism and free markets and free trade, now these nationalist-type Republicans are coming up who are, who are building off of populism and trade restrictions and immigration restrictions and all the rest. Now they're coming in. And yet these groups are saying, no, we're, we're still behind these people, even though they don't really hold positions that we've, we've held throughout our history. Instinct over ideology, right? That's, I mean, that's where most voters are. And I think increasingly, even if the, the, the leaders of these organizations uh, have themselves very strong, well-thought-out ideological convictions – uh, how do they raise their money? Well, they raise their money by showing that they can win races uh, and, and that they can move the needle politically. Well, how do you move the needle politically? You align yourself with candidates who are, who are you know, viable. And, and so this is kind of a circular thing. But, you know, I mentioned earlier this idea that, like, that the Wall Street Journal and uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial page and that, like, research white papers from the Heritage Foundation were going to be dictating the way in which Republican voters uh, behaved politically, uh, it just doesn't exist anymore. It's not, it's not real. And it's jarring to see organizations that once had a very uh, uh, sort of a, a very discernible ideological true north uh, just, just discard it, uh, you know, in the name of kind of expedience and in the name of fundraising and in the name of relevance, right? 
you talked earlier about proximity to power. Um, but I think relevance matters so much in these things too, right? That, that, um, you know, how many of your former friends would still to this day, if you sat down and, and poured them a beer in your basement and you guys were like shooting a game of pool, how many of them would still tell you that Trump is a detestable character, somebody who is uh, just immoral and untrustworthy? And um, but they would never, ever, ever say that publicly. And they will gladly get in front of the cameras with him and they will gladly raise money for him and they will gladly take money for him and they will gladly go on cable television and defend him until their last breath, uh, all in the name of not just sort of political expediency and self-preservation, but relevance, right? They, you know, as, as soon as you get pushed out, you start to lose some of your relevance. Um, uh, and if you don't belong to a tribe, it's almost impossible to be relevant because we live in such a binary kind of bifurcated uh, political ecosystem now. And so, um, you know, the, the Club for Growth, among other groups, they learned that lesson the hard way early in the Trump years, right? And so now, of course, you see them casting their lot with people who are not by any kind of classical definition, uh, sort of liberty-minded, free market-minded, free enterprise-minded um, conservative-oriented people in terms of conserving institutions, um, just not how they think. And it's not, su it's not surprising necessarily to see them gaining traction with voters generally. It is a little more surprising to see them winning the support of organizations that once purported to believe in something entirely different. Yeah, and I, I run into this issue all the time where I don't, I don't know what the organizations even stand for anymore. I'm, I'm just not clear. Uh, throughout my time in Congress, up until around, say, the Trump impeachment, or or let's say my last term in Congress, um, tw you know, 2019, 2020, I really understood where these organizations were. Like, I knew, I could tell you if we had a vote on something, I knew where the organization was going to stand. If there was uh, some issue out there, I knew where the organization was going to stand. And I don't really know anymore because it seems like it's not really about principles or policies anymore. It's more about feelings. Like just this guy, this guy is with us against our enemies. He'll stand with us our, against our enemies. And so, you know, the enemy of our enemies is our friend. And, and that's, that's how it seems to work increasingly. Do you think there's any, hope to to break this cycle i don't mean like will trumpism itself go away i've you know we've talked about how movements come and go within parties the party the republican party 20 years from now won't necessarily re resemble the republican party today the democratic party of today does not at all resemble the democratic party of barack obama i mean these are very different parties and that's that's been less than a decade so what what do you think will happen, though, in terms of breaking out of this cycle of entertainment and theatrics? Is that possible? Part of why I left Congress was I didn't see that changing anytime soon. Is it possible in, in your mind, just looking at it from the outside, I was on the inside looking at it, is there a way to 
overcome the fact that people like to go on social media. They like to see their politicians as mascots. Um, increasingly, we have our noses in everyone else's business because when I go onto Twitter, just like anyone else, I can find out what's happening at any part of the country. And what I increasingly see is you know, conservatives saying, oh, can you believe there's this drag show going on in some obscure part of the country in a, in a city that I'm never going to visit, but can you believe it's happening and isn't it horrific? And for me, like whatever you think about it, you don't live there and you're not those parents and it's, it's not your fight, but suddenly everything's become everyone's fight. Like we're just fighting over all of it and the politicians understand that. And so they're now playing into it. Everything is just like uh, performative and entertainment. Is there a way to break out of that or are we stuck this way because of technology? So I think that's the biggest, that, that piece of it, the technology piece is probably the biggest differentiator between this period of American history and any other. You will often hear brilliant people, you know, historians and academics, folks who have studied all of these uh, ups and downs in American history, who will tell you, oh, you know, listen, we've been through this before, and they'll give you examples, and, uh, you know, it doesn't last, this stuff burns hot, especially when you're coming out of a period of economic turmoil, and there's this kind of rise in populism and nationalism, and let's keep everybody out, and let's just take care of ourselves, but then we become prosperous again, and the cycle repeats itself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And periods of intense polarization, and um, I, I think the thing that differentiates this era for me is the technology. It is the connectivity. It is the fact that we are neighbors to people who live thousands of miles away from us. Right. And how do you, you know, talked earlier about all politics being national, something that you and I really agree on. I don't know that we've necessarily reckoned with the implications of that. Um, Because let's face it, right. I, I have visited in the last few years, Justin, a whole bunch of communities all over the country smaller, smaller towns where I've done reporting and I'll always find my way to like the city hall or to the local church or to some civic uh, happening farmer's market. And I'll just talk with people for a couple of days and try and figure out what's going on. And if I've heard this story once, I've heard it 30 times, which is that uh, the old, some of the old physical convening spaces that used to bring their community together no longer exist anymore. Uh, and that many people in the community actually don't physically gather in the way that they used to. Maybe there's some event here, some happening there, and it draws some modest crowd, but it's not the way that it used to be, right? And in the place of that physical community, there is virtual community now. And that virtual community in many of these places that I have visited is like a community Facebook page, right? Where people from the town or people from the surrounding area that can all come together and join this Facebook group. But inevitably what happens is that in this Facebook group for the community, they're not talking about the new restaurant opening. They're not talking about like the city council meeting from last week. If they're having disagreements over things, it's nothing local. It's national. It's, yeah, there's a post about the you know drag show in in a state that's a thousand miles away, or there's a post about something that Biden just said, you know, tripping over his words, and a meme about him being, uh, you know, having Alzheimer's or whatever it is, right? Like, 
And so even in these even in these virtual gathering spaces that are designed to be hyper local, they have become nationalized. And so that's the problem is like, I don't, I really don't have a great answer and I don't have a great deal of optimism, frankly, for how we find our way out of this cycle. Um, I've tried really hard in the last, I don't know, six months or so to like not get on Twitter very much. I've tried really hard to spend less time reading online digital information and really try to consume as much of my local papers as I can. Um, there, I think there, in it, this, this, this transcends politics, of course. I think to have a functioning civic society, it has to work from the inside out. It has to work from the bottom up. But as we've returned to time and time again in this conversation, it just feels like America is fundamentally becoming a top-down, super centralized place right now. And that's problematic in a whole lot of ways. Politics is just one of them. Yeah, Totally agree with you, and that's why I think we all have to focus on ways to decentralize all this. And also, I think that culturally, we're just going to have to find a way to pull back from some of the technology to to not get so riled up. Like maybe there will almost be an etiquette of like just not getting all riled up about what's happening. Yeah in some other part of the country that that will become something people try to emphasize to, to their family, to their kids. Like, this is not the way we live. Like, um, you know, we, we're not going to stick our noses in everyone's business because I don't think you can, you can rein in the technology anymore. It's, it's there, it's going to exist. Um, and it, it might continue to advance in ways that completely alter what we are as humans in a sense. But, um, you know, those are, those are questions and issues beyond the scope of this conversation. And in any case, we've, we've had a very insightful uh, discussion and I've, I've, um, you know, at least on your end, insightful and, uh, I really appreciate it. You're the, you're the perfect person to talk to, at this point right after the primary election. So I, I really appreciate your coming on here and I'm sure we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, it was, this was fun. It was, uh, after, after, after many years of my asking you the questions, you got to turn the table. So <laughs> sure you enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, I, I always love this stuff. So, and you know, hopefully I'll keep doing this kind of thing into the future. I, 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 I have fun talking to people and I want to talk to people, not just about politics, but, I'm just a curious person, so I really love this. So yeah, well, good luck. The uh, the politics now permeates everything, right? You get some yeah. religion or sports or entertainment, whatever. It's like politics is right front and center now. So that's, I mean, talk about and doesn't it feel as like that goes hand in hand with the centralization, right? Is like the politics now is yeah every day in our face. Uh, so good luck. I hope you can find some conversation about that. Thanks, thanks, Tim. Thanks to everyone listening. See ya.